Vrunasa. So we've finished the cycle of meditations on these four immeasurables. We end on this very lofty plateau of equanimity. It's not easy to stay there. When we arrive, it's an unstable equilibrium for very good reasons. This equanimity, it's, it's not a good translation, but I'll stick with it. Most people use it. Uh, but of course, we all know what it means. It's this even-heartedness, even-heartedness, looking through the veneer, the appearances of others. But of course, the appearances are there. They don't go away, you know, these impure appearances. And so some people are simply more attractive than others, physically speaking. It's always been true whether your children, adolescents, even the elderly. Some are elderly people are more, uh, how do you say, physically attractive. Some are still quite attractive, even when they're quite old, at least to other old, older people. You know? <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and then some are kind of ordinary, neutral, and then some unpleasant, unappealing, undesirable, unattractive, it's always been true. So there's no evenness there. Never has been. Even children. Some are cute, some are not so cute. Some are kind of ugly. Just the way it is. It's always been true. So there's a lot of unevenness there. And as long as we have our eyes open, it's just kind of shouting at us every single day. Right? That's the, that's the way things are. And then there are some people that are just fun to be with. They're entertaining, they're interesting, they're jovial, they make jokes. And other people kind of boring. And other people just by their nature, I'm not talking about physical appearance, just by how they are, kind of disagreeable. It's just the way it is, right? It's always been true. Some people are just disagreeable, kind of grumpy, critical, negative, just unappealing. And that's always been true. It will be true tomorrow, it will be true for the rest of humanity. It's just the way things are. And that goes also for animals. Some are cute, some are not so cute. I've never really seen a cute alligator. Never seen one. Cocker spaniels? Yes. Alligators? No. no. But just focusing on the human beings. Then among human beings, there are those who, are, who like us. Any one of us here. Whoever you are, there's probably somebody who likes you. Keep your eyes open. There's got to be somebody out there. You know. And those people are easier to like. If they like you, then it's easier to like them right back. And some people are just, they look at you like, you know, leftovers. Like, there you are. You're not rotten yet, but I don't want to eat you. They're just kind of like, you're just taking up some space in my visual field. And your presence or ignorance is basically that doesn't make any difference at all, one way or another. You are completely uninteresting to me. You know? And then some people just don't like us. And we should get used to that. Because it will always be true. Some people didn't like Jesus. Some people didn't like the Buddha. Some people don't like the Dalai Lama or Mahatma Gandhi or Mother Teresa or you or Desmond Tutu. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. St. Francis of Assisi, there, I don't know who it was, but I'm sure there was somebody who didn't really care for Francis. 
just rubbed him the wrong way. And so there's nothing we can do about it. There's no way we can be so agreeable, so sweet, so homogeneously kind, humble, self-effacing, that we can be assured, now, everybody likes me, right? Every, you don't, oh, you don't? Oh, I'll fix that. What can I do for you to make you like me? Nothing. Nothing. If the Buddha can't do it, forget about it. If Jesus can't do it, forget about it. There's nothing we can do to make everybody like us. Doesn't matter what. Doesn't matter what. You can manifest as Vajrasattva and they say, you're just showing off. <laughs> oh, that white luminous business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seen that before. <laughs> Special effects everywhere. No. Just the way it is. And then we cut a little bit deeper. You know, we look, we're starting at the outside, right? Just sheer appearances, bone structure, skin, and so forth. The most superficial. And then kind of personality, agreeable, disagreeable. And then how they relate to us. Okay, we're getting a bit deeper. And now let's go deeper. Let's go now to more, how do you say, important area. Some people are more virtuous than others. It's always been true. Some, and now we're talking about something not trivial like cheekbones or, you know, whatever. We're talking about virtue. Some people are kinder. Some people are malevolent. Some people are simply indifferent. And it's always been true. Just generically, I mean, just some people not having nothing to do with us, but there are people around us in this room, a surrounding environment throughout the whole planet. There are, and it's always been true, just a tremendous gradient of variety of people in terms of just sheer virtue and non-virtue and then kind of just ethically neutral. It's always been true. And virtue just generally is attractive. Just generally speaking, whether you're a religious person, not religious, materialistic, agnostic, whatever, when you see somebody engaging in acts of kindness, benevolence, compassion, and so forth, it's appealing. Because you kind of feel, well, maybe that person, maybe I'll be in need one day, and if so, I'd like that person around. You know? And not that person over there who seems to not give a damn about anybody. And not that person over there who seems really quite cruel. So I kind of like to shy away from him. I don't, I don't, like, I don't like those people. They're cruel, they're mean, they're hostile, they're arrogant, they're, they're not nice people. And don't tell me they're the same as nice people, they're not at all. Just true, right? So this concerned me very early on. I mean, it was the, as many of you already know, it was the first question I ever posed to His Holiness. And that I knew there, I was 21, I knew I just wanted to devote the rest of my life to Dharma, it was perfectly clear, <laughs> for a very simple reason, nothing else had any appeal. Uh, and the whole point was to cultivate virtue and to attenuate, to you know, diminish non-virtue. Oh. What's that wonderful phrase? I just summarized all of Buddha Dharma in four lines. And it's so quintessential. Yes, I've memorized it in Tibetan. Don't engage in any, in any type of vice at all. Do, in, in, manifest no type of vice. Just don't do it. Stop it. That's the Buddhist teaching. Stop it. When you see it coming up, stop it. You know, that's it. That's the, that's the whole Buddhist therapy. Don't do it. And engage in a bounty of virtue. Whether it's the virtue of a yogi sitting on top of a hill for 40 years in total sol solitude, cultivating 
compassion or shamatha or vipassana, what have you, that's gila. Or a person opening up a free clinic or a mother taking good care of her children. Just virtue. Just a bounty of virtue. But of course, Buddhism has a very broad spectrum there. The virtue can be a mother taking care of, or a person, a couple taking care of a whole bunch of children in an orphanage, or a yogi, let's say yogini, living alone in a cave for 40 years. Yeah, virtue. Sadhu, 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 sadhu. But big, spe- big spectrum. So the Buddha said, Gewa Pinsun Sokaja, devote yourself to a bounty of virtue. Rangisem Nehyon Sutul, completely subdue, train pacify, calm your own mind. Calm it from what? Mental afflictions. Including the affliction of aloof indifference. It feels very calm. It's just one more mental affliction. It's an expression of delusion, of ignorance and delusion. Right? So we need to be careful when I say that. Completely subdue your own mind. And that is, it's not just flattening out to a bland indifference. That's just one more mental affliction. Right. Completely subdue all obscurations of the mind, afflictive and cognitive. This is the teaching of the Buddha. This is what the Buddha revealed. Demba means to show. It doesn't mean to propound, to preach, to indoctrinate. Demba means to show. It's just a simple verb. Show me. Where are your keys? Show me. I don't want instruction on keys. I mean, where are your keys? Show me. Where are your keys? Show me. That's the word. It's a simple truth. And therefore, if somebody's showing, then another person says, Come and see. That great clarion call from the Pali Canon. Not come and be indoctrinated. Come adopt a belief system. Come and be obedient. Come, no, come and see. You know? Why? Because somebody's showing something. The Buddha was giving pointing out instructions from the first turning of will of Dharma. What else was it? Pointing out that which we don't want to see, that we want to turn away from, that we blink. Reality of suffering. We just want, to, we just want it to go away. We want to take a pill. I, saw, I watched a nine-minute ghastly video posted on the New York Times about Prozac. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. It was like it was paid like New York Times now is owned by the pharmaceutical country, company that makes Prozac. Because it was saying, you know, until 1987, people were depressed. And then they came along with this pill. And it's specifically targeting to serotonin. And the world changed. The world changed. It was just like depression vanished. And this beautiful young woman, she was the she was the cheerleader. Really, what else do you call it? I don't mean cheerleaders of sentient beings, but she was the cheerleader for Prozac. Gorgeous, drop-dead gorgeous. She was also depressed. She took Prozac, and she was the pinup girl. I mean, really, that's what she was. She was the pinup girl for Prozac. You know? And it just went on and on for nine minutes, and I said, and I was just watching it, I was, and watching it, you know, coming right to the present, how they, their, their patent ran out, and now they've come up with a new name, basically the same drug. Maybe they tweaked a molecule here and there because they had to have another one because they made so many billions of dollars on the last one. They didn't want that cash cow to dry up. So it has a new name, basically the same thing. And so they can plug it again with a new, with a new, uh, a new patent. But I was waiting for them to comment on the landmark 
mega-study, meta-study that was done several years back, where it was an enormous study of the efficacy of the antidepressants across the board. There's a wide variety, extremely extraordinary, and they have different kind of chemical influences on the brain. To show, and, and, and it was published in the peer-reviewed. It was either New England Journal of Science or JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, one of those two. It was absolutely top flight, most prestigious journal. And the conclusion was that all the antidepressants, without exception, except for in cases of extreme and acute depression, they have no more benefit than placebo. Now, that's not me. That's really solid investigative science. And a friend of mine, who is a world-class journalist, she covered it extremely well. And so I, I alerted her to this, just yesterday, to this New York Times piece. Nine minutes of basically an infomercial for Prozac, and then they were talking about cosmetic pharma, uh, psychopharmaceuticals. That's what they're calling it, cosmetic psychopharmaceuticals. And this was promoted by one MD, of course. He's their pinup guy. For a woman, of course, he's young and gorgeous. For the guy, he's wearing the, you know, wearing the, the, the garb of, I'm representing the medical establishment. It's so gender-disgusting, you want to puke. And the, the guy comes up, and he said, well, now I've coined this term, uh, something like cosmetic psychopharmacology, and this is where you're pretty normal, but you'd like to be exceptional. In which case, we have the drugs for you. And so if you'd like to be all that you can be, well, this is a growth industry, invest now, come in on the basement, you know, because this is going to be big. There was not one mention in nine minutes of the detrimental side effects of antidepressants. Only that antidepressants before Prozac had side effects. They didn't mention one for Prozac or any of the ones that have come out since then. Not one reference. So the propaganda arm is very, very alive and well and promoted by the New York Times, which is just one of many. If they were exceptional, then, you know, that, then I might not mention their name, but since they're simply representative, there we are. So that really caught my attention. And when I wrote to this, she's world-class, I keep her name anonymous. But when I, when I pointed this out, she said, well, I can attribute these either to evil or stupidity. I think I choose the latter. But then, I, but then I wrote right back and said, but who's challenging it? Is investigative science journalism dead? She hasn't answered yet. <laughs> I, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. So equanimity, this is actually all a comment, commentary on equanimity. We have our work cut out for us because the appearances are so uneven, right down to virtue. And I just finished that story, but many of you know it already, so I'll make quick work of it. So I saw just after a couple of months in Dharmzala, devoting myself to Dharma, but no, I'm, I'm still wearing, wearing my diapers, you know, really. So I knew that. I knew almost nothing. But then other Westerners coming in. I'd been there for maybe three months. But others who'd only come in like for a week, they heard about me, I'm staying at the Dalai Lama doctor's house, and they would come to me with Dharma questions. You know, this is like preschool kids asking a kindergartner, you know, whatever. And then the kindergartner says, oh yeah, I can handle that. Cool dude, I got that, I got that covered, yeah. Sure, I can answer, sure, what do you, what, what do you want to know? You know? And they were asking such basic questions that I, I felt I nailed it every time. You know, I've been through preschool, I've been here for two months. I know what's going on. <laughs> you know. And then I felt this sense, oh, I know more than they do. Those hippies. 
I know more than they do, and I've meditated too. I have more meditative experience. I've been meditating two months now. <laughs> I'm an experienced meditator. Yeah. And I thought, pardon the word, but oh shit. I've been arrogant before I got to Dharamsala, and now I'm becoming spiritually arrogant, and I'd like to devote the rest of my life to this. And if my practice is effective, then I'm going to be cultivating virtue. And my mental afflictions are going to get less. Otherwise, why be here? I mean, really, this is what it's all about. And so how does that not... What's the scenario for my not winding up achieving the perfection of... What's the word? Assholeship. <laughs> when I become... You know, after I've meditated for 40 years or so, at the perfection of pomposity, a spiritual arrogance, superiority, because, hey, caramba, I've meditated more than anybody in this room. <laughs> I've studied Buddhism more. You inferior people, you. So how do you avoid that? And I did not know. I really didn't know. And I was waiting, because Yishu Dundun told me I could have a private audience with His Holiness when I wanted to. And I didn't. I waited. He's a great man. I already had some sense of that. I didn't know why, but I had that some sense. I didn't want to waste his time. But I waited until I saw this one. I said, man, I'm screwed. If I can't get a really good answer to that question, then I'm screwed. Because if my practice doesn't go well, then why am I here? If it does go well and I wind up being a big asshole, then, then what's the point? I mean, I'm, it's kind of like, which flavor of asshole would you like? You know? So that's what I asked him. And he, and he, again, without going through the whole story, he just made it very clear to me that if any good qualities come up and if any negative qualities go down, the only authentic response is gratitude. I won't elaborate. That's the root, that's the root text. It's the only authentic response. Nothing, everything else misses the mark. It's not like you're being hum Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm being so virtuous now because I'm really humble. Bullshit. No, you're not. If that's what you think, you're still screwed up. It's just the only authentic response. If you see any good qualities coming up and any negative qualities subsiding, I'll just say it. It's just simply 100% true. The only authentic response is gratitude. That's it. That's full it. I have nothing more to say on that one. So, equanimity. Final point for the, you know, the whole issue of scientific materialism. In that view, we're all, we are all surfaces. That is, human beings are surfaces, like that, you know, that brain that gets frozen and shaved off like, like lunch meat. It surfaces all the way through. Some people have better brains than others. That's just the way it is. And through training and so forth, certain parts of the brain develop more in some people than others. Like in the old days before GPS, London taxi cab drivers, a part of their brain developed extraordinarily as they're maintaining this enormous complex map of London streets, which are incredible maze, just unbelievable maze. And they're holding that all together. Well, a part of the brain really, really develops, more so than ordinary people. And that's going to be true for musicians and meditators and everybody else. So brains are not created, evil, uh, are not created equal, and they do not develop equally. So if we're brains, then just get over it. Some people are just better than others. That's it. And bodies, obviously some bodies are just better than other bodies, period. And if that's all we are, then, then there is really no hope for authentic equanimity or even hardness within a materialistic paradigm because there's just no element of us that is even. 
because we are just meat or programs or whatever flavor materialism that has entranced you. So really it is not only false but incredibly destructive. Once again, the same theme. So it requires wisdom. Recall that if you've developed even authentic bodhicitta, and it's even come to the point where it's your bodhicitta is arising spontaneously, effortlessly, uncontrived, right, uncreated. It's just flowing like that, right? You remember that. That's when you become a bodhisattva. That's when you've entered the small stage of the Mahayana path of accumulation, right? You're a bodhisattva. And you could still lose it. You could still take one giant step backwards and be an un-bodhisattva, a failed bodhisattva. And how? It could happen. It probably has happened. That you'll witness some event, or maybe it just kind of grows on you after a while, that people are just so hopeless. It's so degenerate. People's attitudes, their behavior, and so forth, that you say, you know, it's like being a, a marvelous teacher in a classroom full of students who have no interest in learning whatever you're teaching. All they want to do is insult you, insult each other, play, scream, and so forth. And you may be the best teacher in, this, in your state or in your country, but you may look at this and say, but I see you actually don't want to listen to anything I have to say. All you want to do is fight among yourselves and just show disrespect here, but basically total indifference. And so I'm going to just put two and two together here. I don't think you have any use for me at all. And so have a happy day. I wish you could, but I don't think you will. But there's nothing for me to do here. And you're saying that to the universe. You know? And you see, it's not psychotic. It's kind of like, well, what you just said is true. <laughs> you know, Most people are not interested in anything you have to say. Give them something, they'll like that, but they won't be grateful for long. You know, people aren't. They don't like to be grateful. It's a burden. Right? So, equanimity. The, bodh- the bodhisattva can lose his or her bodh- bodhicitta unless it's supported with wisdom. That's it. That's the armor that protects you from the manifestations of sentient beings around you, which sometimes are really very difficult to witness, very difficult to bear, very difficult to maintain any hope that you can really do anything significant in the world because the whole current is flowing in the opposite direction. It takes wisdom. And the wisdom particularly of identitylessness, of no self. If you can go deeper beyond the identitylessness of the individual, for example, of yourself, to the emptiness of phenomena. Then you've got double armor. Now you've got double armor. That no one out there, no situation, no external situation, no internal situation, exists by its own inherent nature. All right? Now you have protected your bodhicitta with ultimate bodhicitta. you protected your relative bodhicitta with ultimate bodhicitta. Now, if you're following the path to your own individual liberation, shravakayana, perhaps outwardly you say you're Mahayana, but is this what you're really after? Your own liberation. Then when you come to equanimity, you've kind of ironed out the bumps in your psyche, which are all bumps of attachment and aversion, attachment and hostility, and so forth, the two fundamental derivative mental afflictions. And we see in order to do that in a way that has a stable equilibrium, 
a stable equilibrium, that is, you iron them, and they don't pop out again. You've got to get to the taproot. The taproot, of course, is ignorance and delusion, and the two sprouts that come from that one seed are craving and hostility, right? Craving and aversion, afflictive aversion. So you've got to damage that seed. Otherwise, when I, when I, when I was a kid, I pulled weeds, 50 cents an hour, for many hundreds of hours. Uh, 50 cents was the cheap rate, because I didn't think I was really worthy to have 75 cents. I was embarrassed to ask for that much. But 50%, I thought, that's a bargain. They'll, they'll accept me. You know, didn't have a whole lot of high self-esteem self, high self as a weed puller. But, um, you know, hundreds of hours that way. But, of course, every good weed puller knows you can't just pull off the green part. You have to get in there, especially the ones that are difficult or thorny. And I didn't have gloves. But you have to grab them, and you have to get down below the, below the soil, and you have to get that root, get it really firmly, as deep down as you can get, and then yank the whole little mother up, the mother of all the seeds and so forth. But you have to get down there. You can't just take off the, the, the prickly leaves and so forth on the surface, because it'll grow right back. Same thing. It's not enough to iron out these unevennesses in our minds and the way we attend to other sentient beings, but leave the taproot of delusion untouched, because it will not be a stable equilibrium. Right? Good gardening tip. You get, have to get the, the root, the, the reed from the root, so the, the earth comes up when you pull it out, and it just doesn't stay as it was. So if you're following the path of your own individual liberation, and you really do have insight, you've been an authentic practitioner, you're working on Shila Samadhi and Prajna, you've gained some insight into non-self, not-self, and with that empowering you, providing you for the, ar the armor for your four immeasurables, then you do have that even-heartedness. And you see that in Shravakayana monks at their best, when they are at their best. It's occurred many, many times. And, that, and it's, it's recounted in history, in, in Buddhist texts and so forth, that this, you know, this very, very accomplished monk or nun, makes no difference, of course, um, whether it's a family member greeting, coming to the monastery and making some alms, or whether it's a total stranger, or somebody who did something, maybe killed your mother. Anybody. So anybody coming to the same monastery to make some alms, the monk there treats them all equally. Family member, don't expect a big smile. Oh, mom, go so good to see you. Been a long time. Oh, see how the kids, you know. No, just even stranger, loved one, friend, and foe. Even, even. It can be rather cool. That happens. Because the nirvana has the connotation of cooling. Nirvana means to cool. That's one of its implications. So it can be rather cool. And then you proceed along the path, stream entry and so forth and so on. And with that mind of very profound reality rooted equilibrium and equanimity, with no attachment, no aversion here or there, then you just quietly slip out, hardly leaving a ripple behind. And you're gone. And you just, your final disappearing act. And they say, without residue. Nirvana, with no remainder. You're leaving nothing behind. Not even your shoes or sandals. Because by the time you've left, they're not your shoes or sandals anymore. They're just sandals. And not even a tiny vestige of, that was my sandals. So that's one way 
that you end on that high note of equanimity, cool. Not aloof, not indifferent, not unkind, but just cool. And then, vanishing it. Your body just left behind. It's nobody's body. It's just, you know, compost. But if you're following the Mahayana, and that's where we're going today, if you're following the Bodhisattva path, then this is, this is preschool. This equanimity, this is the foundation. This is where you start. The first discursive meditation that Geshe Rapton told me, and he was my first meditation teacher, he taught, he, this is the first one, he said equanimity. He didn't teach me Lamrim. He taught me equanimity. He said almost all the problems in your life are coming from a lack of this. So equanimity, of this type of equanimity. So it's the basis, it's widely known, everywhere known. This dakjen yamje, this equality of self and other. That is, there's no preference. This is, how, this is where you've now parted ways from. You've gone beyond, you've transcended the shravakayana. There's no sense of priority that your liberation is of greater value, a higher priority than anybody else's liberation. Which means the notion of you're slipping off and leaving everybody behind makes no sense. Again, imagine that you're a mother of a large family of kids and your house is on fire, burning to the ground. And the house is full of kids. They're all sound asleep. But you pick up the smoke and say, oh, but the whole, fa- the whole house is, I mean, it's all around. This house is going to be totally destroyed. And you, you recognize that. The Buddha actually has a, a, a discourse called the fire sermon the fire sutta, the all of samsara is like a burning house. And so there you are, the mother of her large family. She says, wow, the place is on fire. I'm getting out of here. I hope the kids, I hope the kids find out. Oh, that looks a bit, something's off there. That's the Mahayana view. There's something off there. Uh, they're related to you. They're related to you. you know, they're not strangers. They're actually looking to you. They're related. You're the same family. And of course, the Mahayana just comes in with this resounding lion's roar. We're all family. We're all family. All sentient beings were family. Don't ignore that one. We're all family. So therefore, that's not an option. However, however attractive it may appear at first glance, it's just not an option. And so as we come to this high plateau of equanimity, oh, I like Winston Churchill, when the British in the Second World War had finally turned the tide in the war in North Africa. Uh, and it was clear they were going to win that one. There was so much else to be done if the Allies were going to uh, you know, gain victory over the Axis powers. But his famous statement was, this is not the end this is not even the beginning of the end, but it may be the end of the beginning. <laughs> if that's not verbatim, it's very close. And the accent, well. It's an American trying to imitate Winston Churchill. Don't get, don't get your expectations too high. But that's very close to what he said. He was one powerful orator, that's for sure. But it may be the end of the beginning. Well, that's what it is. When you've achieved such equanimity, that's the end of the beginning. That's the end of that phase of mundo, 
So I must say, I'm just not that impressed by doing 100,000 prostrations. People working out in the gym, they're doing much better than that. Really. Compare a person who does 100,000 prostrations to what these dudes do over there, dudes and dudesses. You know, the women. I mean, there's no comparison. A mere 100,000 prostrations compared to what they're doing, and the people doing those laps in the pool, and hitting those tennis balls back and forth, like, I'm doing 100,000 forehand, 100,000 100, 100, backhand, 100,000 backhand with top spin. I'm doing 100,000 overhead. I finished my preliminaries. I'm ready for the match. I'm really not that impressed. I mean, it's just, it can be such a routine to get through. I still hear it so often. One person just wrote to me this morning. I was doing my prostrations and I set my goal. I'm going to do this many this day. And I'm thinking, oh man, I've heard that before. This year, I'm going to bench press 150 kilos. I'm seeing the same attitude, and one is pretending to be spiritual, and the other one is just, I want big biceps. Women like them. If they fall down, they'll know I can pick them up. <laughs> Women like handsome men, rich men, and smart men. And funny men. But not for very long. That's my big analysis. <laughs> I gave it at least five seconds thought. So don't put much credence in that. You know, here's preliminary. The four measurables, that's preliminary. These are the big mundo. Four applications of mindfulness to give some muscle, some strength, some depth to those four measurables. So you actually get some insight. Now that's mundo. Shamatha, as Leda Blingba said, I mean, this is not, I'm not being an iconoclast here, but Leda Blingba, one of the greatest Dzogchen masters from the 19th century, said, well, shamatha, that's, that's the mundo for your so-called preliminary practices. The, the guru yoga, the bodhicitta, the vajrasattva, and so forth and so on. No, settling your mind in its natural state. That's the mundo for that. That's the culminating of the common preliminaries. And then you go to the uncommon ones, which are specifically for preparing you for Vajrayana practice. Right. So we've come to this high plateau, this high plateau of equanimity. And we move then with this foundation, ready to move it up to another whole dimension of practice. And we move then to great compassion. There will be much more to be said, but my time is out, and it's time for our 24-minute session. We'll be even actually a little bit late. We'll, we'll start again with the supplication, with the four empowerments, and we'll move on. So we'll continue now. We'll just be five minutes later, so today. Guru Pema Siddhi Hum Hum Orge Yuki Nupchamsam Pema Gesa Dombola 
Yamsen chokim udubnye pema june shesutana Kodu kandu mambuko keki jesu datuki Jingi lapshi shiksusu guru pema siri hum Hum moge yuki nubchamsan Bema gesa dombola, yamsen choki mudubnye, bema june shesuta, kodu kando mambuko, keki jesu datuki, jingi lapchi shiksusu, guru bema sidi hum. So now practice what we, we listened to last night. Visualizing your Guru, Padmasambhava, Guru Ramache, radiant light, 
He appears in many forms. So choose the one that speaks most to your heart. Gazing upon you with the, the affection, the warmth, the kindness of a mother looking upon her only child. Lama, Supreme Mother. And then at your invitation, imagine this luminous, empty form of Padmasambhava coming to the crown of your head, diminishing in size and instantaneously facing in the same direction as yourself. And then, as if consumed with bliss, the primordial indivisibility of bliss and emptiness, imagine Padmasambhava's luminous form dissolving, melting into light, and flowing down through your avaduti, your central channel, to your heart. Upon this lotus, moon, and sun disk, in the center of your heart chakra, Padmasambhava reappearing, once again, an insubstantial, luminous form. Filling this empty space of your own body and mind, no longer the space of any sentient being. And imagine Guru Rinpoche's body, speech, and mind merging indivisibly with your own, such that your own perspective now, your own presence, is that of Padmasambhava, one of infinite displays of Samantabhatra, the primordial Buddha, the very personification of your own pristine awareness. rest in equipoise. If you'd like to switch positions, please do so now. you remain sitting, then with the periphery of your awareness, 
maintain a very light visualization, soft, peripheral, of your own form as the form of Padmasambhava. your speech and mind indivisible from that of Padmasambhava. And if you're lying down, you may do the visualization, but focus on the essence, the core. It has nothing to do with your posture. To your best approximation, view reality, view your own mind and everything else. From the perspective of Padmasambhava's mind, which is simply to say, from the perspective of your own rikpa. Rest there, releasing all other grasping. Rest in that state of equipoise, of meditative equipoise, such that your awareness is free of the imbalances of excitation and laxity. Your awareness resting in its own nature, still unperturbed. Viewing reality from this still point that is clear and without bias. Now expand the field of your mental awareness with the power of imagination, but imagining what is actually true here and now to the world around you, this world populated by sentient beings of all kinds. And this inhabited world of our planet and countless other inhabited worlds populated by sentient beings just like ourselves in the ocean of samsara. Each one, just like ourselves, wishing to be happy, wishing to find an enduring happiness, a genuine happiness, a fulfilling sense of well-being, and wishing to be free of all kinds of suffering. And therefore, at least the implicit wish to be free of the true causes of suffering. We're all the same. We're all of the same family. so much suffering as we seek to be free of suffering we hasten after the causes of suffering we seek to be 
to find happiness, we destroy the causes of our happiness, all out of delusion, equally. All out of delusion, ignorance and delusion. And yet we all have Buddha nature, we're all of the Buddha family. We have the capacity for perfect awakening, every single one, equally. So the classic meditative cultivation of Mahakaruna, great compassion, begins with a question. And in Tibetan, Semshin Tamshi Dunga Dan Dunga Gigyutan Dhamma Jimarung. It's with that intonation. Why couldn't all sentient beings be free of suffering and the causes of suffering? It's not a rhetorical question. It's time to meditate, to view reality with the eyes of wisdom. Why couldn't we? What's to prevent each one from being utterly, irreversibly free from all suffering and all causes of suffering. What's to prevent us? Why couldn't it happen? What's in the way? What needs to happen? Go deeply. Meditate. The seed is there. The primary cause is there. It is the Buddha nature. The Tathagatagarbha. It's already there. So what's needed? In order, to, in order to enable that seed to germinate, to come to full fruition, as manifest, perfect awakening, the seed's already there. So now what else is needed? What are the cooperative conditions? Do you see that it could be done? Do you see that it could be possible? Do you see hope for every sentient being that this actually could happen? Each one could be perfectly awakened. You must see how for such hope, reality-based hope, to arise. you see it, you have an answer to that question. The lion's roar of Dharma. And when you see it, then you move to the second phase of the meditation, 
You move beyond the question to an aspiration. May we be free. May we all be free of all suffering and the causes of all suffering. And if you wish, then bring in the visualization, bring in the breath, and with every inhalation, imagine drawing in the darkness of the world, of all worlds, of all sentient beings. One world per sentient being. Imagine drawing in the darkness of suffering and all the causes of suffering right down to the taproot of ignorance and delusion. With each in-breath, draw in this vast darkness this ocean of samsara and dissolve it without trace in the infinite light at your heart. Then we move to the third phase of the meditation. We began with a question, we moved to an aspiration, and now we move beyond aspiration to intention, to resolve, to a pledge. I shall free us all. Now you must go deep. You must go beyond the dimension of your being this human being versus that one. You must go beyond the dimension of the substrate consciousness. There is only one authentic perspective from which to arouse authentically that resolve. And that, of course, is your own Buddha nature. I shall free us all. If you dare, in the presence of all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, in the presence of all sentient beings, call out your lion's roar. I shall free us all.
arouse this resolve with every in-breath. And with every in-breath, imagine now actually drawing in the darkness of the world, the darkness of all mental afflictions, the darkness of all obscurations. Drawing it in from above and below on all the sides, siphoning it into this incandescent, fathomless orb of light at your heart. And with each in-breath, imagine sentient beings becoming free. Move boldly into that realm of possibility and imagine the burden of darkness lifting. Breath by breath, imagine all sentient beings here and now being freed. Imagine world peace throughout all possible worlds. Imagine all being free. You began with a question. We moved to an aspiration, and we moved further to a, pr- to a promise. 
And then as we come to the culmination of the practice, we move to a prayer, a supplication. May the Lama and the Buddhas bless me so that I may be, may be able to do so. The Lama and the Yidams, all the myriad forms of the Buddhas, may the Lama and the Divine Samantabhadra, Samantabhadri, bless me that I may be able to do so. But do not look for the Buddha outside yourself. May the Lama, indivisible from my own rikpa, my own pristine awareness, enable me to do so. With each in-breath, imagine the, the blessings in the form of light, five colored lights, the rainbow lights of all the Buddhas, all the Gurus, all the Bodhisattvas. With every in-breath, imagine light flowing in from all sides, all the Buddhas rising up to meet you, all the enlightened ones blessing you. filling you to supersaturation with their light of great compassion. And with every outbreath, imagine from this inexhaustible source of light at your own heart, light flowing out in all directions, realizing the aspiration and the resolve of great compassion.
Release all appearances and all aspirations, all prayers. Let your awareness rest in its own perfection. As you well know, I'm not one for empty rituals, because they seem like a lie. Just like the false facsimile of the near enemy of loving-kindness is self-centered attachment. It's an empty ritual. Right? It looks like it, and it's empty. There's just, it's not there. There's something behind it which is not loving-kindness at all. It, but it's a nice ritual. The outer looks good, but it's empty. Rituals can, of course, be tremendously meaningful, and they can be totally empty, not in a good way, empty of any meaning whatsoever. So we don't do much in the way of rituals here, but here's one we do, right? We call this Asian, right? Asian. Germans, South Americans, they don't do this unless they learn it from Asian, right? Palms together. So here in Thailand, it's just customary. It's a custom. It's courtesy. But that, I don't think that's where it came from. Largely a Buddhist country. And so, just speaking from the, my own background in Buddhism, this, what does it mean? It runs so strongly in Zen, right? It's everywhere. Always palms together, palms together. Right. Well, I'll just, I'm coming from a Tibetan background. What's, what's the deal? The thumbs are inside, right? It's not this. It's not just two palms flat, flat on each other. Other people can do that. That's fine. But no, the Mayana tradition, the palms are inside, right? And so what's inside there? That's your Buddha nature. That's the fusion of method and wisdom. I've got two, th- two thumbs, right? That's the fusion of method and wisdom. Emptiness and luminosity, ultimate reality, relative reality. It's right there in the center, right? That's your Buddha nature. That's your Buddha nature. From your Buddha nature, you're pressing your palms together. 
and your focus of attention is the Buddha nature, the person you're attending to, not all the other stuff. This one's attractive, this one's pleasant, this one's funny, this one's intelligent, this one's virtuous, this one's interesting, and so forth. It's not that. That's not deserving of that. That's deserving of this. I salute you. You're very intelligent. I salute you. You have a lot of power. I salute you. You're beautiful. Salut. No. That's okay for that. That's on the surface. And you can demand it in the military, right? You didn't, you didn't salute into the brig with you. Okay, that's the samsaric one. Okay, but this, no, no, this is something deeper. That's your Buddha nature. And enclosed within the, the lotus petals of your heart. And one of the classic metaphors, it's from the Uttara Tantra, I'm almost certain. Classic images, parables, metaphors of Buddha nature is like a lotus in a swamp. Really a yucky swamp, you know. Fertilizer, all kinds of yucky stuff. Swamp. And the lotus is beneath the surface of the water. And inside the lotus, very special lotus, inside the lotus is a jewel. right? But the jewel is all enclosed in the lotus petals. But it's still there, it's already there. right? And then the lotus gradually makes its way up through the layers upon layers upon layers of obscuration, sedimentation, poop, all kinds of stuff that swamps are made out of, until eventually breaks the surface. And they say, oh, there's a lotus. That's nice. I like lotuses. And amazingly, when the lotus, even no matter how yucky, disgusting the swamp is, amazingly, when the lotus actually breaks through the surface of the water and then it opens, it's pure. It somehow transcends all the yuckiness from which it actually drew sustenance, nourishment, fertilizer. And it comes pure. I like pure lotuses. They're very pretty. I like virtue. Virtue is nice. But then something really quite extraordinary happens. Ever seen that one before? Ring a bell? Hands just opening, releasing every vestige of your identity as a sentient being? Remember that one? And what's left when you just go, just the jewel, your Buddha nature, that's all that's left. That's all that remains. So we ask, well, I'm going to linger a little bit more. This is too good. If it's good, you've got to share it. You really have no choice. That first question, that's a boomer. That's a big question. It's an enormous question. You can, you can meditate for 30 years on that one. It'll keep you busy. You know, why couldn't every sentient being be free of suffering and its causes? Because they're not. It hasn't happened. There's a truth to that. Why not? Since every single one has the potential for perfect awakening, what's taking us so long? And that's not a rhetorical question. And it's not one to give a flip answer, well, these are degenerate times, what can you do? Forget about that one. So that jewel in the lotus, it's making its way up through the layers and layers of sedimentation and so forth, because there are cooperative conditions. It doesn't just stay down in the drek. It's, made, it's coming through, right? Because there are cooperative conditions for it to come up. Ask any good gardener or horticulturalist, they'll tell you what's needed to make a lotus rise up and 
open up, flower. So those are the cooperative conditions. What are the cooperative conditions for the, the seed of bodhicitta, Buddha nature, to flower? What are they? You know. So that's where you see hope. It's not enough to have the potential. There have to be the cooperative conditions for that to become manifest. And then the petals open, and that which was already there, it's called ranjinirik. Ranjinirik. The glupas are very good at this. And I think all the new translation schools. Because they'll emphasize two aspects of Buddha nature. One is ranjinirik. Ranjin means nature. Ne is abiding. It's already present. Rik is your gotra. Your gotra is your family. Buddha nature. So it's that Buddha nature that is already naturally present. You couldn't get rid of it if you wanted to. You can't make it better. You can't make it worse. You can't develop it. It's just already there. It's, it's, it's rikpa, right? It's already perfect. It was never diminished. and There's nothing you can do to enhance it or improve it. Ranjin nirik. It's already there, naturally present. And that's our primary cause. But then there's the gegyukirik. There's another way of looking at this. So the, what I just expressed, that's Dzogchen perspective. Your awareness is already perfect. And there's nothing you can do about it to make it worse or better. So just recognize what's already there, for heaven's sakes. It's who you actually are already. You know, stop it. The whole business of being a sentient being, just stop it. You know, because that's not who you are. Wake up. It's almost like a person who's kind of passing out. I've seen it in the movies. And somebody slaps them. Slaps them. Don't pass out. Don't pass out. You know, like a person who's been in collision. I think there's some kind of, there's a nurse here. There's some kind of accidents where the medics are there. Do not fall asleep. Do not fall asleep. So I'm getting a nod from a very experienced nurse. And they'll do anything. They might even slap them. To keep, no, stay awake. Stay with me. Stay with me. Sound familiar? Don't pass out. Don't go to sleep, because you will die. It's not very nice to slap people but better than dying, better than passing out. And later on, you might actually thank them. The Gyekyukirik is the other aspect, seen from a sentient being's perspective. Gyekyukirik, ye, ye yur, means expanding, growing, evolving, maturing, a path. That's what it's referring to. A path where something wasn't there earlier and then it is. Yeyukirik. And Rik, once again, is Gotra, the family, your nature. This evolving Buddha nature. Evolving Buddha nature. In order to make that which is already present manifest. Because it's already there, but it's not manifest. In order for that, then we need to bring in the cooperative conditions so that from a sentient being's perspective, you see something really evolving, transforming, moving, growing, proceeding along the path, through time, as mental afflictions fall away, obscurations fall away, virtues come in their abundance to their perfection. And then you see, what are you doing? I'm developing bodhicitta. Ultimate and relative bodhicitta. I'm developing, cultivating, I'm bringing in the cooperative conditions together 
so that the lotus of my very being moves through the layers and layers of sedimentation, fertilizer, call it what you will, opens up. You become a bodhisattva. You've risen above. You're facing the sun. The blossom is there above the water. You're a bodhisattva. Good. Keep going. Let those petals open completely and reveal that which was already there in the first place. And that's the fourth empowerment. Right. But there's nothing to be done. There never was anything to be done. From that perspective, from the jewel's perspective, there was never anything to be done. It's already a jewel. And it never got better, never got worse. From the jewel's perspective. That. So let's continue in daytime dream yoga practice, wisdom practice, and then infuse it throughout the whole course of the day with great compassion. So there's non-dual, right? Pure vision, pure illusory body, saturated by great compassion. And then, at the end of the day, there's no possible way you'll feel regret that you've wasted the day. Even if it's your last day, you're going out with a bang. Well done. See you later.